Hi, this is Sheila Jackson, and welcome to The Good CEO, where you meet bold, unapologetic visionaries and innovators who leverage their brands for good to elevate a new culture of activism and empire building. My goal is to inspire you to positive action. My guest today is Tyrone McKinley Freeman, an award-winning scholar and educator whose work has appeared in O, Time, BBC News, Newsweek, Blavity, The Conversation, and other news and media platforms. He has trained nonprofit leaders across the United States, Africa, Asia, and Europe. His research focuses on the history of American philanthropy and philanthropy in communities of color. His newest book examines the life of America's first self-made female millionaire. Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving, Black Women's Philanthropy During Jim Crow, examines how giving shaped the life of Madam C.J. Walker before and after she became wealthy, and the power and legacy of charitable giving in the African-American community. Tyrone McKinley Freeman is currently Assistant Professor of Philanthropic Studies and Director of Undergraduate Programs at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. So hi and welcome to The Good CEO. Thank you so much for joining me and and giving us this time. I want to ask you about um, your book, it is Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving. And what do you, that name, the name of that book, her Gospel of Giving, uh, can you just tell me how you came about, came up with the name? Yeah, so, um, and uh, I came up with the name because it's it's both a, a nod to kind of the origins and the development of her own approach to philanthropy. And it also is speaking to the larger field of philanthropy because one common way of thinking about giving is called the gospel of wealth, which is attributed to Andrew Carnegie, the famous uh, white uh, um, entrepreneur of the turn of the 20th century. Um, and uh, his his approach to giving was one of really, you know, spending your life accumulating wealth and then later in life becoming serious about philanthropy and focusing on giving back to society. And and when I looked at what Madam Walker was doing as a peer of his, a contemporary, if you will, um, a black woman entrepreneur living at the same turn of the 20th century time period, um, that's not what she was doing. Um, she wasn't waiting until she was older or had more. Um, she was giving along the way. And so the gospel of giving is my articulation of her philosophy of giving, which is actually something that started much earlier in her life before she became an entrepreneur, before she became a millionaire, uh, before she had wealth. It actually started when she was a, a poor, orphaned, widowed, single mother in St. Louis in her 20s with a, a young daughter in tow and barely $2 in her pocket. And yet she was helped by uh, the local black St. Louis community, specifically through a church. And in the process of becoming a part of that community and being engaged in that church, um, she began to become a donor and to give and to help other African-Americans in the city who were struggling. And so philanthropy 
became this this way of life, this giving, this generosity that really unfolded across her lifetime. It didn't kind of wait and then kind of explode at the end, as it's done with so many famous people, even the, the billionaires and, and things, the folks that we focus on now kind of stint, tend to kind of come to it after they have achieved their notoriety or, or, their, or their wealth. But this was a value that she had that started very early for her and just continued to grow and blossom. So, so I called it Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving, and then the, the subtitle is Black Women's Philanthropy During Jim Crow, to pay homage to the, what, what she was doing and to note the fact that she, she learned this from other black women and that many of her black women peers were doing the same thing. Um, she just happened to create a, a very unique platform from which to do it, being this multi, you know, this million dollar company um, at the height of Jim Crow. I love that. Yeah, Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving by Tyrone McKinley Freeman. What a great last name. I love that last name. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Freeman. And I, I love that because I think about how I grew up. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and my godmother and my great aunt were like those grandmother figures in my life. And my great aunt used to take us around you know, she would go to visit the sick and shut-in on certain Sundays after church. She would, you know, donate. We always donated our clothes or old dolls, toys we didn't play with anymore. We always, I was just raised in this concept of giving back, of volunteering. And even yes. when I left home and got married, I, I always have had some aspect of volunteerism. In my life, because it was just something that was ingrained in me growing up. I volunteered at the women's shelters. I volunteered at youth emergency service. I did, you know, I've always had that component of my life and probably which is what led me to the good CEO, because I think that in the times that we're in right now, we can't really afford not just as black people, but as a people in general, not to have that empathy and compassion and and giving of giving of our gifts, giving of whatever resources we have to improve things. Can you tell us a little about the era that Madam C.J. Walker came up in and just, you know, where her her business that her business grew out of, you know, kind of the social societal backdrop against which her business grew out of. Sure. And, and I totally relate to what you said in terms of your upbringing. I had similar upbringing uh, growing up in the church. And that's the other aspect of the gospel of giving that is deeply influenced by the African Methodist Episcopal Church because she was a member of that. And so there's religious influence there too. But I had the similar kind of experiences of, of coming from a family that was very generous and very engaged. And it wasn't necessarily called philanthropy. You're just doing what you were supposed to do. And so this book is really a history of that. Where did that come from? Uh, it comes from the elders and, and previous generations who were doing the same thing. And, and I note that, you know, Madam Walker was taught this by the older black women around her who embraced her. So I'm trying to give a sense of where some of those giving traditions and ways of being that we have today have come from. And so to your point about, you know, the, the times, right, this is, um, you know, she was born in 1867 in Delta, Louisiana. Her birth name was uh, Sarah Breedlove. She was the first freeborn child um, into her family. The Breedloves had been enslaved on a cotton plantation. Uh, 
Um, and uh, but, but life quickly became very difficult for her. By the age of seven, her parents had died. Um, so she's orphaned and she is under the care of her older sister. She becomes a washerwoman in her very young years. Um, she marries in her early teens, um, has a daughter, and then her husband dies. So now she's widowed and a single mother. Um, and Jim Crow is being erected around her because by this point, um, the promise and the hope of reconstruction where black people got a taste of citizenship after emancipation in the 1870s is ripped out from under them as literally an angry white South raises up and takes their country back. And so she's she's coming of age in this environment where Jim Crow is getting its feet and is creating racialized terror uh, for black men and women in the black community all around the country. Um, but she, she moves to St. Louis um, in her 20s, and I, I mentioned this earlier, she's embraced by a local community, uh, specifically the church. Her brothers are there too. They also had a barber shop. So she's reunited with family, embraced by a church, and things begin to turn around for her there, that she becomes an integrated part of this community. I mentioned earlier, she becomes a giver, engaged in church life and community life, and eventually begins working for another black woman, speaking of, of good CEO, Annie Malone. Um, who uh, had a company called the Poro Company and sold beauty products. And so um, it's actually Annie Malone who brings uh, Sarah Breedlove into the beauty culture business. And, and it is as an agent for, for Malone that, that Walker begins to develop her own product lines. And she marries a man named Charles Joseph Walker, takes his name, puts her face and Madam C.J. Walker on the products, the labels of the products, and begins, you know, knocking on doors. And, and things slowly start to take off. And she begins traveling um, and 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 um, really a relentless uh, kind of really passionate engaged entrepreneur trying to pursue this vision of a better life and of how to be of service to her people um, and and in Indian uh, in 1910 she moves to Indianapolis and that's where kind of her story takes off. She formally incorporates her company. Um, she sets down roots, builds a factory, and, and that's where she kind of begins the process of becoming a household name. Her products just take off. Thousands of women take to her system and her method, uh, join the company, um, and she very much has this sensibility that the company has a role to play in the struggle for liberation. And so she talks to her agents, her sales agents, about not only selling products, but also um, engaging in racial uplift, serving the race, doing what you can for others. And there's lots of evidence we see in the archives that I write about in the book of, of how the agents responded and they, they donated to black colleges, they supported the NAACP, they participated in, in marches and parades against lynching and, and raised their voices to support public policy against lynching to, to protect black life. And so She's a powerful example of someone. I like to say that she was doing social entrepreneurship 100 years before that became a business yeah. school buzzword um, because she very much, the, the business was a bit important part at this part in her life, uh, an important platform for her to engage in the cause of racial uplift and give black women pathways for economic development in spite of a larger Jim Crow economy that wanted to keep them locked in to menial labor, domestic labor, and locked out of meaningful opportunities to to develop a gainful employment and really take care of their family and their responsibilities. Yes. And does, and just out of curiosity, as an aside, I, I went to undergrad in St. Louis to Washington okay. University. So there's a real presence of Annie Malone, Annie yes. Malone Children's Home, Absolutely. all of that. Does Madam C.J. Walker have that kind of, of legacy or, or space in, in Indiana? 
Yes, she does. Um, actually, in a few places. So in Indianapolis, the the site on where her home was and the first factory that she built is is now the home of what for, for decades has been known as the Madam Walker Theater. It's now called the Madam Walker Legacy Center. But that was the building built by her daughter in the late 1920s um, to house the headquarters of the company. Um, it's, it's a beautiful kind of flat iron facility uh, right uh, downtown Indianapolis. And um, it it uh, served as the headquarters for her company um, right up until the 1980s when the family sold off the, the, the business. Um, and since that time, it's been a, um, a, a, a an arts and culture, a heritage site, um, and it is going through a, a, a renaissance of rejuvenation now as it just finished up a $15 million renovation. Um, it's, it's launching a new categories of uh, new categories of programming. It's known for doing uh, things like jazz on the avenue. It's located on, on Indiana Avenue, which is a famous street in Indianapolis that was part of a vibrant black neighborhood um, for, for much of the, the 20th century. Um, and it used to have many different jazz clubs and businesses. And it was a vibrant business and cultural sector for the local black community. And, and people from Duke Ellington uh, would have come through and perform. And so the, the Walker Theater or the Walker Legacy Center is the anchor of that neighborhood and, 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 and maintains that legacy to this day. Also in Irvington, New York, um, her mansion still stands. Uh, Villa Luaro um, is, uh, when, at the time she built it in um, 1916, 1917. Um, at that time, it cost $250,000. It had 34 rooms, um, and all types of materials were flown in from, I mean, you know, brought in from all around the country, um, even overseas to 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 build it. She had a black architect um, design it, and um, that still stands to this day. And interesting enough, it was recently purchased by um, the family that uh, bought her company, and you, her products are available now through Sephora. And so the, the family that bought her product, her, her company and, and sells them through Sephora owns the, the mansion now and is planning to turn it into what they've described as a think tank dedicated to supporting black women in business. And that's Shea Moisture, right? Yeah, yes, the Sundial Corporation and, and Shea Moisture is one of their one of their brands. Oh, OK, that that's well. right. Yeah. Sundial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A larger yeah. organization. Right. In your book, you talk about, you distinguish African-American philanthropy mm -hmm. about giving to strangers versus giving to family, friends, and others. And it sounds like to me, when I think about an Afrocentric Afro way of thinking or worldview versus a Eurocentric worldview is what came to mind when I thought about that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, a lot of what we think about as being philanthropy today or charitable or one aspect of it in terms of charitable giving of, of money to organizations is, is largely defined by tax policy. You know, we all think about, you know, mm -hmm. tax time and, and what's deductible and what's not. And in that one sense, you know, the government has very strict guidelines in terms of the kinds of gifts that you can deduct and those that, you know, you can't. But um, what I, I'm showing a history that predates that because that tax policy only comes from 1969. And, and, and you know, uh, it, it just philanthropy as a human phenomenon predates that. It goes back eons. Right. And so um, in, in Western notions of philanthropy, there very much is this idea that that philanthropy is something that's done for strangers, that it's not something that you might do for family members or even people you know or people in your network, but it's something for others in the in the in the very distant 
um, social relations sense. But in communities of color, philanthropy starts at home. Um, that it, that in, in many cases, there's, there's no distinction made between giving to support a struggling family member or a struggling neighbor or even a distant cousin or that, that stranger whom you just bump into or don't know, um, because it all comes from the same place of generosity. And we're, this, these aren't people trying to get tax deductions, right? Because you, you know, what you might give to your nephew or your niece, you know, you can't deduct. But if you gave the same thing to a college student, right, as a scholarship right. or something like that, you could deduct it, right? We're not talking about that. We're just talking about the, the organic ways that people develop for taking care of each other, for surviving a larger society that did not welcome them, did not want them, that deliberately and intentionally made life difficult through things like slavery, through things like Jim Crow. Um, and we see this in other ethnic communities as well, too. I mean, our immigrant brothers and sisters, the history of immigration in America, our histories of, of communities coming into America and being vilified and being struggled, but they would have internal ways of being and sharing and giving to look after each other. Um, and so in, in African-American philanthropy, this idea of, of you know, it's it's not about the stranger. It's a, it's about just giving. And if that happens to be a stranger, fine. But there's also family members and, mm -hmm. and, and others that you know. And, and it's very much part of this collective consciousness, which is also an important part for understanding um, African-American philanthropy, that there's this common larger situation, this, this identity as people who are subject to these larger systems like Jim Crow that identified them based on skin color and, and determine their life chances and determine what parts of town they could live on and what schools they could go to and what opportunities they had. There's a collective consciousness that emerges with that. Um, and, and part of the sense of responsibility to each other, to, to help each other, to uplift the race, to look out for each other. Th these are the kinds of things that have shaped and molded um, the African-American philanthropic response over time. You've been listening to the Good CEO Podcast. Entrepreneurs start companies leaders start movements. I invite you to become a founding member of the Good CEO Movement, a community of women leaders dedicated to innovation, positive action, value creation, and exponential business growth. Membership is free. Refine your brand voice. Receive mentorship and the support of like-minded entrepreneurs. Participate in monthly challenges designed to hone your skills as a good CEO. Gain access to free masterclasses and strategy sessions. Visit thegoodceo.co to join. Yes, and I think this book is so important right now. As you talk about this, I think about, I have this book. It was my father's book. Um, was it A New Negro? It was a book, book by Booker T. Washington. Uh-huh. And he has a chapter in there because he wrote about, he documented so much of black life. Yes. And he wrote about black women social clubs mm. and or black women clubs and how these clubs, whenever you would move, for instance, from the south to the north, that you would be embraced by these new communities of black women through these yeah. clubs, yeah. you know, through this kind of system of organizations that supported and helped, you know, black people migrate from the South yes. to the North, you know, and even I think growing up, you know, the friend of the friends 
cousin. <laughs> right, right. You know, if you're moving to New York, I think when my sister moved to New York, it was the neighbor's sister. That's right. Let her, you know, let a room, as we say in the old that's days. That's right, that's right, you know? <laughs> that's right. Holla at my cousin when you come to town, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah right, exactly. So a, a lot of that, but... I just that just came to mind as you were talking that we've had this and I say it to say because I what I think is so important about this book right now is it's important that we are reminded as a people that we have a legacy of giving. There's a tendency to feel such a sense of lack, you know, because of the systemic stressors that that we live under in this country that we don't have the capacity to give. You know, because we don't have the, you know, the money or the financial grounding, but that giving takes away from you somehow. But we've mm-hmm. always been able to give. We've always had this charitable or philanthropic aspect of our lives. And it's something that's a legacy for us. Yes. You know, yes, absolutely. It is something that is it's deeply rooted and it not only goes back to the beginning of our American experience, it predates. It goes back to pre-colonial Western Africa um, into communities and villages and ways in which people looked after each other and, and the structure of communities, the structures of families and who you are responsible for. Um, many of those things survived the Middle Passage and, and became a part of plantation culture and life amongst the enslaved and, and have, have grown and developed. And so and I think that's important. I highlight that in the book, too, because it's also... It, it points to how um, black philanthropy is more than a response to the kind of the absurdity of racism in America and, and Jim Crow and slavery. It mm-hmm. speaks to something that a deeper generosity that because it predates, it comes from pre-colonial Western Africa. I think that's an important um, point to make, um, which yeah, means it's that it's also, response. yeah, I mean, it has its elements that have been shaped and responded to it, but it's bigger than that, right? And it's part of, uh, part of that deep dignity and humanity and generosity of a people who were thought to have none of those things, but actually they do. And giving is one way that they have historically expressed it and are expressing it right now in this moment as well. Yes, and in large ways, you know, and part of the mission of the Good CEO is really to change the face or expand, not necessarily to change, but really to expand the face of the Good CEO, What who we think of when we think of the Good CEO. It doesn't have to be old, white, and male, you That's know. Correct. That's correct. So that it's it's important for us to start to see ourselves reflected in that. So that's why I love this book. There's a quote I love by Coretta Scott King, and she says, you know, at the she I think it was at the March on Washington that she said this: "If the soul of a nation is to be saved, I believe that you must become its soul." And she was saying that to black women, mm-hmm. and I really believe that black women are uniquely called to lead and uplift not just the black race, but the world. That's just my personal thing. Mm. But I think that, you know, what do you think Madam C.J. Walker would believe about the role of black women? Because I know I read some things in the book about, you know, she just wasn't for black women. She felt that the advancement of black men and boys was directly tied to black women. Yeah, yeah. She was very much invested in uplifting the race, right, which is a historical mm-hmm. way of thinking about philanthropy in the black community. Um, and, and in fact, you know, she, her generation, uh, it was common for um, black men and black women to think of themselves as race men, 
or race women. And what they meant by that was that they were someone who was dedicated to helping African-Americans overcome the scourge of Jim Crow and, and all of its associated oppressions, the, the lynchings, the lack of opportunity, the indignities. And so to be a race woman, right, uh, puts her as a, as a peer with, you know, Lucy Laney, Mary McLeod Bethune, Charlotte Hawkins Brown, the other names in history, women who, who carved out areas of impact in education and in clubs. Um, and in politics um, uh, to, to, to do something on behalf of the race to uplift the race. And, and you're right, there's a great history of black women's political activism that's a part of this that I connect Walker to, a great history of black women using their clubs, their churches, and their companies to, again, fight for rights, to open up opportunities for black women, um, and, and in turn to, to, to improve the entire race. And that Madam Walker's uh, and particularly noted this when she supported the building of a black YMCA in the city of Indianapolis in the early 19-teens. Um, she made a lead gift to a campaign to build that facility, $1,000. Um, and she said the reason why she did that is that, um, you know, if we could get the YMCA built for our men and boys, um, then that would allow us to build a YWCA for our women and girls. And, and sure enough, um, a few years later, after that building was constructed, um, the, the, the Phyllis Wheatley YWCA um, for black women and girls was constructed at Indianapolis. Unfortunately, she was passed away by that time, but she had a hand in early organizing and planning for that. So she very much saw this interconnection that supporting and uplifting women has a hand and important foundation for supporting and uplifting the race as a whole. Yes, yes. I, I loved learning all those details about her. One thing that was interesting, you said Walker would freely give of her time and money, but never her products. Her goods were never to be given away. Yeah. And that's that business savvy that probably <laughs> that made her a millionaire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That observation came from one of her her, her longest living employees, um, who who made that reflection in one of the documentaries that she was in, and just saying, you know, she wouldn't, you know, she wouldn't give the products. And you could think about the pride associated with labor, the pride associated mm -hmm. with the company, um, and and how that enabled her to do other things with other resources. And also the other the other thing that I highlight through this book is each book is or each. Uh, each chapter is named for a different kind of gift that she gave, and only one is about money, which is an important thing for understanding black philanthropy because money is an important gift, but it's not the only gift. And so I show how she used her company as a gift to provide opportunity, how she used her voice to speak to issues of the day as a form of activism, how she used her national network of beauty schools to give education to people dealing with a Jim Crow system that's giving them, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, not educating them properly. Um, and, and so, so it, it also gives a way of understanding this broad tr tradition and the different ways that one can give and how giving has nothing to do with what's in your pocketbook or your checking account. That, that giving at philanthropy at its heart is about generosity, not about wealth. And Madam Walker, in recounting her story, I show this model that any one of us can follow, regardless of who we are, where we're from, what we have, what we don't have. Exactly. It basically says what you have right now is enough to help somebody. Um, and so give as you can uh, to be helpful to others and don't um, you know, worry about uh, waiting until you have more time, more money, more influence. No, give it yeah. now as you can because the need is so great. And, and that's the kind of thing that doesn't absolve government of what it needs to do because public policy is an important part of this struggle for freedom and, and equality for people. It doesn't absolve the private sector of what it needs to do to, to 
increase the cult, improve the culture and open up opportunities for people. But it just speaks to a way of that we as individuals can live, you know, generous lives within our communities and be of help to each other, which I think is needed now more than ever. Yes, I want to jump up and do a holy dance. All right. You were saying that. That was just like, it was like, preach. Because <laughs> that's just right. I mean, I that is what I really believe, you know, mm. that you don't. And I, and I work with people from small businesses, solopreneurs to larger companies, because I, I believe it's not just about money. I love this quote you had in the book by Cheryl Smith. Where you said she said activism was used to make money, and money was used to support activism and social service and advance the cause of full citizenship of all Black people, and I I love that because it it ties it circles back to something I was just talking about over the last week, mm. which is legacy building versus uh, empire building. Mm. Yes, and you know we want to build empires. And and that's great, you know, but what's your legacy? And I don't think you have to build an empire to have to build a legacy. You don't. But it's great when you can do both. And Madam C.J. Walker did both, which was a beautiful thing. But she left a legacy. And we really had to think about what is our legacy. And that's one of your last chapters in the book is about yeah. legacy. Yes, yes, it is. Well, and you know, in our history, empire hasn't turned out too well for us, right? So I, th- right. I like your, your way of focusing better on legacy, right? Um, but yeah, no, that, that last chapter is really about um, how she constructed her will as a way to to leave behind a legacy that would uphold these values that she had regarding family, community, faith, mm-hmm. um, entrepreneurship, and racial uplift. And so I, I take the reader inside the experience she had of, of, of crafting her will with her attorney, um, who was a black man named Freeman B. Ransom, and also was her general manager at her company. Um, they had an incredible partnership. Um, and, and There's he that very name much- again. Yeah, there it is again, right? No kin, though. Um, and he really he administered much of her philanthropy after the business started taking off, and he would he would manage the money, manage the donations, manage her relationships and participation in different organizations and things like that. And so I, I take you inside those conversations they were having, the kinds of organizations she wanted to support, and the things that she left behind for the people um, that were important to her. Um, of course, there were things she left for her family, but she left behind lifetime income for some of her employees. Uh, she oh, left behind. Goodness houses um, for people. Again, this idea of, of giving people a, a foundation from which to build or to from which to create a new pathway in this Jim Crow world that doesn't want you to have a foundation or a pathway at all. Um, and, and many of those people, I show how some of those people go on and pursue education and, and do other things. And, uh, you know, so it, it just shows how she kind of kept giving in many ways. Um, that's so important. And we can't forget that many of the organizations that were uh, were on the leading edge of, of the mid-20th century civil rights movement were started during Madam Walker's lifetime. And she and her peers, that generation, were the generation of givers who supported those organizations. And so mm-hmm. one aspect of her legacy that I write about is how in 1952, the head of the NAACP, a man named Walter White, at a memorial service while standing over Madam Walker's grave, says that um, were it not for the generosity of Madam Walker, the NAACP would not have survived the Great Depression. 
Um, and so it's important to think about that. Him saying that in 1952, right as the civil rights movement is, as we know it, is about to take off and the NAACP is in position for that. Um, it's because of her generation, um, that, that supported it and, and lifted it up and, and, and it gave it and passed it on to future generations to be there and be ready. So that challenges us to think about what we're building now, right? That's going to be in position to help the next generation continue their leg of the struggle that we're currently engaged in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just, you know, it's all about how do you how can we transmit our values through how we do business and the legacy that we leave behind? Because the legacy she left behind is such a a grand reflection of what was important to her. You know, the financial independence of black women, the uplift of her people, you know, just all of those things. She was a race woman and she was the first millionaire, right? Not the first black woman millionaire. She was the first female millionaire. So the label that she's that's been attached to her is is the first self-made female millionaire. Um, now there there are um, ways of challenging that because um, there there were other wealthy black millionaires at the time, um, and and um, what what we what we do know is that her her millionaire status her resources are the best documented from that era because um, many others are, are kind of based off of newspaper reports, but they're actually files and budgets and and. And, and, and ledgers that you can look at in her archive that document her wealth and her status, which are difficult for others. But it's important to note that there were others. So she really is part of this generation of, 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 of people who rise to that level and that status. Um, and it's important to, to, to kind of keep that in mind, uh, but also not to let that pull her away from her community. We think that she's a millionaire that can cause us to separate her. Um, but she was very much invested in her community and still maintain strong anchors um, to that community. Even though she's building this mansion and she has three cars, she's very much engaged in that struggle and sees herself as as connected to her, her, her working class brothers and sisters whom she never forgot and, and tried to make opportunities for. Absolutely. So I know why this book is so important to me, why why do you think, who do you think this is reading this book now? Who is this book for? Who's been really embracing this, this history and why do you think it's important right now? Wow. Well, um, the, the book tour continues. The book came out um, in October of 2020 and um, still very much engaged months, months later. Um, I've had wonderful and incredibly touching conversations with different audiences. Um, on the giving side, if you think about the community, um, I've, I've been having conversations with um, African-American church congregations that have been incredible, who definitely connect to the, the spiritual side and the, the foundation of the church and her story. Um, and this idea of generosity. I've been having conversations with giving circle members, uh, fr uh, fraternal or sorority groups um, who are relating to, um, again, um, the, the ways in which she was a part of the community and giving. Uh, so in particular, Black women, um, whom I kind of kept in mind as, as, I, as I was writing this and, and thinking about Black women who are 
out in, in their careers, uh, raising their families, uh, but deeply invested in the community. I, I really kept them first and foremost in my mind as I was writing the story and asking myself, what, 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 do, what, do, what do they want to know? What do they want to know about Walker? What would help them understand and connect with this? And they have been embracing it. But there also have been broader audiences. Um, the professional world of fundraising and philanthropy has connected with the book in a very deep and important way. I've had numerous conversations with professional fundraisers and advancement professionals and alumni relations people through education uh, institutions and, and foundation boards who are thinking about how to do philanthropy differently, how to address the racial reckoning for diversity, equity, and inclusion in nonprofit organizations and in the ways in which they make decisions about who to engage um, and who to um, involve in campaigns and raising money and speaking to the needs of black and brown communities. Um, so, so the book is resonating in many different corridors and it's just exciting um, uh, to be able to ha be in and have those conversations. But I, I first and foremost wrote it for black women because I kept that, this is their history directly. But as we just said earlier, they're on the leading, leading edge of this. And, and the things that they do, part of their legacy is that it is, is never only about them. It's always for the larger uh, cause. And so whether that's for uplifting the race or really challenging and forcing and helping America be true to its promise to all peoples, all citizens, black women through their activism, their service, their generosity, their caring, their mothering, um, and their giving have led the way. Um, and, and we saw that in, in the past, uh, the activism surrounding the recent election. Um, it's just, it manifests itself. Um, black women, the leading edge of the Me Too movement, black women, the leading edge of the Black Lives Matter movement. This is that history, and this is their great gift, not yes. only to America, but to the world. And black women leading voter registration. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> recently, but that's right. But yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for writing this book as a black woman entrepreneur because we don't always feel like we have a history or examples that we can relate to, mm. you know, because we all can't be Oprah. And, you know, <laughs> that's that's a, that's a tall order, that's you know, right, right. and it's so beautiful to be able to have that history recounted. Why That's why it's so important for us to write these books and to share these histories. And I love the way you went into her life and into, you know, sharing those conversations with the attorneys so we could see how she thought about creating a legacy, about you know, her values and how she wanted to put them out there for the world and create something that was lasting. And she really did. But this is a powerful book for, thank you. you know, for women entrepreneurs. And I want to thank you for that, because that was something that I needed, you know, mm -hmm. to be reminded that I had that history. You know, yes. you hear about, you know, yes, she was a self-made millionaire. And it's just, well, how, how do you do that? And this is the primer. You know, it's about giving. It's not about, you know, making the money. She came at this with a focus, with a higher mission, you know, yes, a higher purpose yeah. beyond making money. And mm -hmm. I think that that's where that's where all the good comes from, because money is not, you know, I always say money is not a cause. It's an effect. Money is an effect mm -hmm. of value creation when you create value in the world, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That money is an effect of that. So that's definitely what Madam C.J. Walker did. So yeah. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that because I one of the things that I do in the book is I show how she actually came out of different networks of other black women, whether it's the church women, the club women, or a fraternal order that she was in. And so I kind of push back at this idea that she was this, a self-made, like no one is self-made. That that comes from the, uh, the myth of American rugged individualism, and that was a model of success that was not designed for, for black and brown people. That was designed for white males. Yeah. Um, but, but no one is self-made. Everybody has had someone help them. And so I prefer another term that another historian has used, which is that she was mutually made. Um, she was, uh, you know, um, uh, she, 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 Pamela Walker Laird came up with this term mutually made to talk about the ways in which we come out of networks and that people open doors for us and give us a, a you know, a way of, of, of lifting ourselves up. And we take that and build on that. And so, um, and so then Walker becomes somebody who creates new networks that mutually make other women. And so that's something for your audience to think about. Who are you mutually making? Who has mutually made you and supported you to this point? And then who are you mutually making through your networks and through your influence to help others pursue their goals and ultimately pursue liberation and equality for everyone? I love that mutually made. I'm going to that that will probably be the name of this podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have that. All right. Well, that's, that's Pamela Walker-Laird's word. So I'll give her, yeah, sure I, we give her attribution. But yes, absolutely. It's a powerful way of thinking about our responsibility to each other and how we actually uh, got here. Right. And that's been key to, to black survival. Um, and I think that's key in, in 21st century. Certainly in COVID, we've all had to rely upon others in ways because there were government failures and other things that made it difficult and people had to kind of fend for themselves for a while. So it's important to be mindful of, of others and how we're helping and supporting each other through all of this because we all are in this together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you for joining us. And I know we could we could talk for an hour <laughs> or two. I know. Yes. <laughs> but thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for joining us. And I just want to remind the audience, the name of the book is Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving by Tyrone McKinley Freeman. And this is a powerful book to have in your arsenal. So thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you very much. And my website is, is gospelofgiving.com. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and all those places. So thank you very much for having me. I enjoy being here. Thank you. Thanks for joining The Good CEO. The Good CEO is a production of Eve's Lime. For more information, visit eveslime.com or thegoodceo.co. And remember, a woman who's discovered her voice is a force to be reckoned with. May the force be with you.